0: Father, I ask that this morning You would awaken our hearts with the desire to know Your Son. Lord, I pray that that desire and that desire alone would rule our lives and drive us closer and closer to You. Amen. Most of us have moments when we look at our lives When we look at the way that we spend our time, and we wonder whether it matters at all. You know, the moments where we look at what we spend our time and energy on, we look at it and we ask, is this worth it? Is this actually all there is? Am I not missing something? They're the sort of questions that can lead to deep discouragement, even despair perhaps cynicism, the sort of questions that lead to midlife crises, to watching people jettison their careers or their marriage in search of something else. In small ways, my guess, most of us have tasted some of that. You might be shocked, and it probably won't make you feel better, but I'm pretty certain that Paul never struggled with that. I'm pretty certain that he never wondered whether what he was spending his time on counted or was the right thing. It wasn't because he was from an ancient world that didn't struggle with the question of life, its purpose and its meaning. Many ancient cultures wrestled with this. They wrestled with the purpose and the meaning of life. It's all over the book of Ecclesiastes. Life seems empty and meaningless. Is there nothing more? It's all over the book of Proverbs. Devote yourself to the one thing that matters, wisdom. Everything else is empty. It's all over the Psalms. The first two ask this question, who is the happy one? Who's the blessed one? And the answers given in Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the person that devotes himself, desires the law of God. And in Psalm 2, the person who does reverence before the Son of God. This question is all over the Bible, and the struggle is in many ancient cultures. The ancients wrestled with it too. They came to different conclusions than we do. We tend to think, it's got to be my job. If I had a different job, I would be more satisfied. Or it's got to be my income. If I made more money, I would be more satisfied. The ancients tended to come to answers like, it's the pursuit of virtue. That would make you satisfied. It's the pursuit of wisdom that would make you satisfied. Or the great Roman poet Horace simply saying, take each day with modest and moderate pleasure. That will satisfy you. They came to different answers than us, but they too wrestled with this question and asked this question. Paul didn't struggle with it, not because the ancients didn't struggle with it. Paul didn't struggle with it very simply because he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was pursuing the highest goal. There was no lack of confidence in his life that what he was after was the thing, the thing that mattered. He knew that he gave his life to the only thing that matters in the end. And what's more, unlike all of us mortals, he knew that he had actually achieved it. Can you imagine that? The surety of, I have given my life to the only thing that matters. And I've accomplished it. I've pulled it off. Look at verses 4 through 6 of Philippians 3. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This answer may seem strange and a bit foreign to us, that this is the confidence that I have achieved the highest goal. There's a bit of background needed to understand his answer, because when we read this, we go, whoa, where's the job title? Paul, you didn't list your income. What about a vacation home? Did you get a boat along the way? How do you have so much confidence? And the background very simply goes like this. There is one God. This Paul knew. He had chosen Israel by grace. This Paul knew. He had called them to live faithfully in accordance with the law. This Paul knew. And fourthly, he had given them a promise, a promise that said very simply that when as a nation they lived faithfully, God would come and restore his kingdom. In that moment, all things would be put right. Creation would be restored to God, every enemy of God destroyed, and all things would be in perfect peace, flourishing, and harmony. In that moment when the nation was faithful, all the promises would come to pass, God would return, and the people would be at peace with their Lord. This is the background. This is what Paul knew. To be righteous then, what Paul says of himself, as to the righteousness which is found in the law, I was blameless. To be righteous was to be one of the faithful who trusted and obeyed God no matter what. To be another Abraham. To be another Deborah. To be another Caleb, to be somebody who said, if God says walk, I will walk. If God says stop, I will stop. I will do whatever he says to be faithful and true, obedient to him. To be zealous, this other thing that he says about himself as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, to be zealous was to be actively fighting and working to bring this kingdom about. It was to be on God's side, fighting for purity in the nation, fighting for righteousness. It was to be an Elijah, opposing the priest of Baal. It was to be a Phineas, stopping the idolatry and immorality on the plains of Moab. It was to be Mattathias, the father of the Maccabees, turning back the tide of idolatry in the very temple itself. To be zealous was to be fighting for Israel's purity to be on God's side. A perfect example of what zealous meant to Paul is in that quotation that said of Jesus when he cleansed the temple. You remember it? Zeal for my father's house will consume me. That's what zeal looked like in action. I'm fighting for God's purity. I'm fighting for God's purity. Without understanding, Paul's persecution of the church makes perfect sense. These people are polluting the kingdom of God. They're risking the promises not come true because they're blaspheming. They're calling this dead man the Messiah. And Paul's persecution of them is in perfect line with the zeal that you see of the great figures of old saying, I am on God's side and I'm fighting for God. Paul understood that there was no higher goal than being righteous, being faithful to God, in striving with all of one's might for the sake of the kingdom of God. And his assessment of himself is very simply, I was perfect. I nailed it. He was fighting for the highest thing. And he says, I devoted myself to that highest thing. And I did it with all of my strength. I left nothing behind. We all know of those people, or at least we've heard of those people who leave nothing behind in the pursuit of some goal. We think about the Michael Jordans or the Serena Williams, the Roger Federer's. Or in a different field, we think about the Beethovens or the Mozarts, or in a totally different field, we think about Virgil, so devoted to his craft of poetry that he spent 10 years on a single poem, perfecting it line by line. We've heard of these people who devote themselves to a cause, to devote themselves to an end and do it with all of their wisdom, all of their strength, who are better at anyone else at what they do and who are content with nothing short of perfection, who are relentless for that final goal. Paul was like this, yet his pursuit was higher than theirs. His pursuit was the highest pursuit of all righteousness at the hand of God, the purity of the kingdom of God, zeal for the kingdom of God. Like I said, he never struggled with that question of am I devoting my life to the right thing? Is it worth it? Am I doing a good job? His answer was yes, yes, yes. I have given it everything and I'm aimed in the right direction. How startling is it then How startling is it then that he declares in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. How startling is it that he looks back on his life and said, I was aimed in the right direction and I gave everything. And yet all of it, all of it was useless. It was in my way. It was something to be discarded. None of it mattered. How startling is it to see a person who's done it perfectly say it was empty? He discovered something when he met the Messiah. He discovered that God was indeed building his kingdom and indeed restoring all of creation. He discovered that those very promises that his whole life hung on were actually true and coming to pass. The vision that he was working towards wasn't wrong. He discovered that God was building his kingdom, but what was so stunning to him is that he was building his kingdom in the life and death of Jesus, that all of creation was being restored. Indeed, it was. The promises were coming to pass, but they were coming to pass in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The only thing then Paul realized that mattered was not his effort, but very simply, was, am I close to Jesus? If God is remaking all of creation in the life of Jesus, the only thing that matters is, do I know him? Am I bound close to him? You remember the idea of righteousness, the inner circle, the Abrahams, the Calebs, the Deborahs? The inner circles now are very simply those who are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Those who are close to him, overshadowed by his righteousness, you remember by the zeal, the zealous ones, the Elijahs, those fighting for the kingdom of God? Now, those have been replaced with those who have very simply been rescued by the zeal of Jesus. Everything is undone and remade in the life of Jesus. And although the pursuit is right, God is making his kingdom. How he's doing it has changed completely. Everything was redefined in the Messiah. And Paul looked at his old life, and he said, that pursuit that I had, that was actually in the way. It was actually in my way, and it was rubbish, something to be discarded. The only thing now that counts is whether I'm bound to Jesus, whether I'm close to Jesus, whether I know Jesus. And looking at it from that perspective, Paul realizes everything else needs to be abandoned. Everything else needs to be jettisoned. At best, all those other things are relevant. They don't matter. And at worse, they're actually a hindrance, something in the way. If this is true of Paul's zealous pursuit of righteousness, of Paul's zealous pursuit of the faithfulness that God demanded, if this is true of Paul's zealous pursuit of the kingdom of God restored here on earth, how much more true is it of most of the things that actually consume our time? If this is true of the higher thing, how much more true is it of all the lesser things that we spend our time on? If God is actually rebuilding, building anew his kingdom, but he's doing it in the life and death of Jesus, if the only thing that actually matters if the only thing that matters for you and for me is actually our proximity to Jesus? What does that say about most of the things that we actually spend our time on? Most of the ways that we actually normally use our money. What we discover, like Paul, in looking at them is that they suddenly become very unimportant. Very unimportant. If God is actually building his kingdom restoring all of creation, aimed at this destination where there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and all things will be wrapped up, summed up in the Son, and handed as a gift to the Father. If this is what God is doing, what does our status or success at work matter? What does it matter? What does the honor and the esteem we get from others matter? If this is true, what role does our wealth What role does our material comfort play in this? The integrity, the beauty, the success of the kingdom that God is building dwarfs everything. It becomes shadows and vapors in light of this glory. We discover in that moment that the only thing that actually matters is the life, the beauty, the zeal of Jesus, the righteousness that he offers we discover also in that moment that he shares those things freely with all who approach him, no matter their status and accomplishments in this world. He is not tight and judgmental with his gifts. He offers them freely, no matter who we are, if we approach him. All that matters in the end is whether we know him whether we trust him. This is what Paul discovered, and he sees that all is loss in face of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. This isn't a call to mediocrity or to passivity. It's not a call to say, well, if I've got Jesus, I guess I don't need to worry about school. If I've got Jesus, I can do terrible work at work, and when the boss gets on me, I'll say, look, I've got Jesus. That's all that matters to me. It's not a call to mediocrity or to passivity. Paul's life after his conversion was no less zealous than his life was before his conversion. He sought the audience of kings and governors. He sought the audience of widows and slaves. He sought the audience of anyone who would listen so that he could proclaim Christ. His zeal had not diminished It was refocused and refined through the lens that is the Messiah, and he was willing to go to the ends of the earth and to endure anything to proclaim the glory of Christ. His zeal did not diminish. It was just transformed. This is not a call, in other words, to mediocrity. It's not a call to passivity. It's not a call to sit back and say, well, if God's building his kingdom in the life of Jesus, I guess I'm off the hook And I don't need to worry about anything from here on out. This is a call to transform priorities. That's the point. It's a call to a change in what we value. A transformation of what matters to us. The point is simple. That in light of the kingdom of God, only one thing truly matters in the end. And that is very simply, are you bound to the Messiah? Do you know him? Does he occupy your heart, your mind, your strength? This is what matters in the end. Is he your highest pursuit? Is he your highest desire? Does he rank above all else? Again, not a call to passivity, a call to transformed priorities. We are called to be like people who, like David, would say, in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Called to be people who have that welling up out of our heart. Called to be people who say like David in Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you like I'm in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Called to be people who say, like David in Psalm 27, O Lord, when you said, seek my face, my soul said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Called to be people who, welling up out of our souls, our hearts, with all of our mind and strength, say, I will pursue Jesus. He matters more than everything else. We will discover that when that pursuit becomes the summit of life, when it actually becomes the only thing that matters to us, certain things that we think matter now will need to be jettisoned. There are certain things that will need to be thrown overboard so that our ship can sail more swiftly to the heart of the Messiah We may discover that our need to be right, our need to be noticed, we may discover that the incessant desire to be considered important, to be respected, we may discover that this is a hindrance, holding our ship back, an anchor in the sand, dragging us in the wrong direction. We may discover, like the rich young man, that our anxiety over money, that our desire for financial stability that it needs to be thrown away because it's a hindrance in our path. We may discover that the way that we pursue physical pleasure blocks us, prevents us. We may discover that something like our shame, the fear of acknowledging deep wounds or deep sins, prevent us from drawing close. We may discover that an illicit pleasure that we're hanging on to, that the chains of it need to be broken, so that we can sail more swiftly to the heart of the Messiah. We may discover that the pattern that we're using to cope with our life, a way of numbing ourselves to the difficulty of the day, throwing ourselves too hard into work so that we can shut out broken relationships, numbing ourselves with TV or alcohol or all the other tools we use, we may discover that those things need to be discarded and cast aside so that we might sail more swiftly to the Messiah. We may even discover that it's something that we thought was good, a sense that we needed to be perfect for God to love us. We may discover that that needs to be cast aside. My hope this morning as we listen to Paul's words for myself and for y'all is that whatever thing is weighing down our pursuit of Jesus Christ, My hope is that we would throw it out, cast it aside, count it as loss. My hope is that we would realize that the only thing that matters is that we know Jesus, that we cling to him, that we're clothed in his righteousness, that we're overshadowed by his life, that we're conformed to his death. My prayer as I read through this passage this week Over and over, the prayer that came back to me is very simply, may we be a church that pursues him at all costs. A church that says nothing will stand in my way of being close to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, my Lord. May we be a church that considers everything else secondary, no matter how important the world says it is. There have been moments I feel when I've done this modestly well. There's also been moments when I've woken up after months and realized that my heart has been turned in a different direction. I know I'm not alone in this. And I pray for y'all and for myself that we would be people who say, just give me Jesus. Everything else is secondary. Let this be our prayer. Let this be our pursuit. We need to close but I think it's important to close with one final thought. This pursuit does not begin with you or me. This pursuit does not depend on you or me. We are called into it. And I'll say very bluntly right now, it is what your life is for. Anything less is incomplete, a farce, a lie. It is what your life is for. But this pursuit does not depend on our strength. I don't know about y'all, but that's encouraging news. Because my strength is actually relatively small. I find myself failing in this pursuit more often than I find myself succeeding in this pursuit. The pursuit very simply begins with and depends upon Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the mighty one. He is the one with enough strength to keep us going. Look at verse 12. As Paul says, so we can also say, I haven't already obtained this. I've not yet become perfect. That's encouraging. We have not yet become perfect. As Paul said, but yet I press on to make it my own. I will step towards Jesus one more day. And as Paul said, we can say, we do this because Christ Jesus has already made me his own. That's the beauty of that verse. We press on because he has already made us his own. This is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. He has already made us his own. Your life is secure, in other words. You've been bought. You were held. You've been drawn. He has made you and claimed you and rescued you and secured you. In other words, in this pursuit, in this longing for the very heart of God, we pursue without anxiety because you are already secure. As Isaiah says, your name is inscribed on the palm of his hand. You cannot fail enough in this pursuit to make him relinquish his hold on you. We press on because Christ has made us his own. Amen.